Hi everyone, welcome to Polis Pandit. I'm your host, Logan Stone. Today we'll be discussing Putin's next move, what we think his next actions will be in Ukraine based off of the current geopolitical and military situation in addition to history. We're going to look back at some of his past actions, particularly when he first came to power in the late 90s and early 2000s during the Second Chechen War some of his moves around that time period and just dissecting and analyzing how he acted really reveal, I think, how he will proceed in this Ukraine offensive. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll also talk about how he might exert further pressure on the West, given that really at this point, as he's uh, more and more a pariah around the world, force is really the only alternative that he has to exert any power and authority. He cannot really engage in diplomacy, just given the situation that he's gotten himself in. So there's a greater risk that he may lash out and escalate what's already an awful war into something much bigger. So we'll talk about both of those things, Chechnya and how Putin might escalate this current situation. So stay tuned for that. Let's get started. So to understand Ukraine, let's go back to Chechnya in 1999. The world in 1999, what was going on both in Russia and in Chechnya at that time? So there were a number of bombings in apartment blocks throughout Russia three cities, including Moscow, and hundreds of people, hundreds of Russians died. It was awful. Many people, although this is unconfirmed, but many people believe, both public, the public at large and many experts that I've heard, they believe that it was those were false flag events, that the Chechens were not actually responsible for those bombings, that similar to the Reichstag in uh, Berlin, when the Nazi party came to power, they had burned down the Reichstag uh, to blame you know, uh, the communists. In this situation, many people believe that Putin or the FSB, which is the new version of the KGB, were actually behind those apartment bombs that went off throughout Russia, and which gave a pretext for Putin who had just come to power uh, and was the acting president following uh, Yeltsin stepping down, it gave Putin that necessary pretext to call for an invasion of Chechnya. So keep that in mind that you know we were all very concerned in the early part of this year in 2022 when Putin had amassed almost 200,000 troops on the Ukrainian border that he would be searching for some type of pretext to invade. And there were certainly aggressions and aggravations that I think Ukraine was very, uh, they had a lot of composure and patience and they didn't bite. And they, they actually kept their, their cool while the West was very animated about the whole situation. And maybe Ukraine should have been a little little more concerned just given what's actually happened now. But they didn't fall into any traps. And not saying that Chechnya did either, but um, 
it's kind of crazy to think that Putin would actually bomb his own people. But just given the history of, you know, what we're seeing today, I wouldn't put anything past him. So that led to the Russian army engaging in in a heavily artillery and air power based offensive there they were bombing chechen defenses from afar they hadn't sent in ground troops initially but their aim was to weaken the chechen defenses and when that didn't destroy the will of the chechen people similar to what we're seeing in kiev today putin started targeting civilian locations so apartment buildings housing developments hospitals you name it similar to what we've seen with kiev where a shopping center was destroyed bombs and artillery and airstrikes were all set off around chechnya in late 1999 and early 2000 same approach same tactics so they started with air power and an aerial assault and then that led to a lot of Chechen refugees fleeing, similar, to, of course, to what we're seeing now, this awful scene of, of refugees rushing out of the country, trying to find safety. NATO at that time did nothing. They didn't want to get involved, uh, understandably. You know, Chechnya was not a, and is not a member state of NATO, so similar to Ukraine. And NATO kind of sat on the sidelines, and to be honest, the West probably wasn't as focused on Chechnya as they are today in Ukraine. Today, they're, we're hyper-focused, I feel like, in the West on what's going on in Ukraine and trying to give aid and weaponry, any type of support that we can that isn't direct military intervention or you know even something like a no-fly zone where we might have to engage Russian fighter pilots to enforce that no-fly zone. So you're seeing many of the same tactics and many of the same consequences, unfortunately, for what the Chechen people went through and now what the Ukrainian people went through. Although there is one big difference here. Chechnya was a country of about 1 million people at the time. You had about 370,000 people flee Chechnya. That is nothing compared to the numbers that we're looking at today in Ukraine. Ukraine is a country of 40 million people. You've seen a few million refugees at this point flee Ukraine. We're talking about a drastically larger number when it comes to Ukraine. So remember that, that this offensive in Chechnya, while similar in many, many ways, the vast scale of Ukraine, which is a state that just for any Americans listening, it is the size of Texas. I mean, it's a, it's a big area and it's very wide and there's, it's notoriously known in this time of year for being a very muddy terrain. So it's not like you can just go off-road with your infantry and your tanks and easily cover ground. You really have to rely on roads and... Uh, I mean, it's just a very fertile landscape. It's hard to navigate at times. So uh, all those things factor in. Chechnya, much smaller country. So after that, uh, the, the civilian harassment and brutality 
and the air assault and the aerial approach that weakened Chechen defenses. Then you had the siege of Grozny, and that's when Putin actually sent troops, ground forces, including tanks, into the capital city of Chechnya, Grozny. And of course, both the Russian and the Chechen side sustained heavy losses, extremely heavy losses. And Russia just basically torched the place. If you look at pictures, as I'm showing here, if uh, you're watching this on YouTube, the city became a shell of itself. It became like an empty uh, skull just devastation and destruction everywhere. In fact, the UN called the city at the time, uh, well, this was actually a few years later, in 2003, the UN called it the most destroyed city on earth. There wasn't a, a building left that it seemed like that was unafflicted or untouched by the carnage. Russia won, ultimately, that war uh, through those brutal tactics of just basically firebombing everything and attacking civilians. Tens of thousands of civilians died in, in the aftermath uh, of that war after everything was said and done. And then Putin installed a puppet government, uh, someone that was loyal to the Kremlin. And for the next decade, there was an insurgency and guerrilla warfare. But Chechnya, folks, it was never the same. So even if Putin is un un successful in Ukraine today, unsuccessful with actually getting uh, full control over the country like he was able to in Chechnya in early 2000, we're likely to see a long, drawn-out insurgency and guerrilla warfare as long as you know, the Russian public doesn't uprise against Putin. And by the looks of it right now, it doesn't seem like they will. I mean, I don't want to necessarily assume that most of the Russian population agrees with how the, the war is going, and, but by all accounts, I, you know, most of them have been silent. And I understand that it's a very different country to speak out you know, they don't have free speech by any means. But looking at the stadium rally that very <laughs> seemed very similar to Nazi rallies of the past that Putin had uh, this past week, he filled up an entire stadium of Russian people who were waving flags and looking very patriotic and very fascist, to be honest. Now, I know there are many Russians that have protested, but it seems that unless the Russian people can actually stop Putin, I don't think anything will. Which leads us to the next part of this, seg of this episode here, and that's what Putin will do next. Um, I think based off of the history that we've seen in Chechnya, he will likely t continue to target civilian areas in Kyiv and across the Ukrainian countryside. He will try to destroy the will of the Ukrainian people so that they give in. He will try to create a refugee crisis that will put pressure on countries like Poland and Romania. Anything that borders 
Ukraine for that matter, where Ukrainian citizens might flee first. And that pressure that he's putting on some of those being NATO countries like Poland, he's hoping that those countries will try to convince President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people to make a deal with Putin because they don't want any further refugees coming across the border. So that type of pressure, you're certainly seeing that today. I think that will ramp up because while there might have been a lull the past couple of weeks, the same thing happened in Chechnya where there was kind of uh, there was a, they, the attack was in phases. There was a, an aggressive period and then a lull and then the Russian forces kind of regrouped and then that's when they went in on foot to Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. And I think that's what we'll probably see, unfortunately, with Kyiv today, where there will eventually be uh, you know, Russian infantry and tanks marching into Kyiv eventually um, as they continue to wear down the Ukrainian military, who's been uh, really remarkable and brave and courageous. It's just been incredible to, to see um, under the worst of circumstances but in addition to that added pressure, both to the people of Ukraine and the surrounding states around Ukraine where refugees might flee, Putin will likely escalate this, in my view, given the fact that he will need to continue to show strength to the Russian people. He's, his biggest fear is losing the support of the Russian people where there could be a coup d'etat or assassination attempts against him if he loses their overwhelming support. And he's seen uh, an uprise in his popularity when he announced the, the initial invasion of Ukraine after you know all of the talks of shared unity and you know the denazification of Ukraine he actually saw a rise in his popularity. More Russians came out in support of him. Now, some of that could very well be propaganda, but again, judging by some of the rallies that he's had recently, there wasn't much protest that you could see there. So I know there there is some dissent, but it's it's impossible to to measure from an outsider's perspective. So... What I do think that we can readily predict, though, is this escalation, that the only way that he's going to continue rising in popularity and gaining the respect of his people is if he continues to show strength. And the only way he can show strength is not through diplomatic means on the world stage. Any diplomacy that is done now, nobody is going to agree to cede territory to him. No Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian people will not agree to that. President Zelensky will not agree to that. So he will have to continue taking things by force, unfortunately, if he's going to show strength. Diplomatic means of showing strength without incurring losses on his side, some type of concession, uh, which is totally unacceptable for a guy like Putin. He will not, by any means, look like he lost. So one way that Putin could show strength, and what I fear the most, is 
him invading this little country on the Ukrainian southwestern border called Moldova. The interesting thing about Moldova is that they have this breakaway region that is wedged right in between their their main state, Moldova, and the Ukrainian border. And it's this area called Transnistria. Transnistria. So, as I said, it's wedged right in between uh, the border of Ukraine and uh, the state of Moldova. There was a ceasefire that was agreed to in 1992, but Transnistrian separatists that are backed by Russia are there to this day. It's very close to the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. So if Russians should take Odessa in Ukraine, it's only a matter of time, really, before they join up with this group of separatists that are already backed by the Russian government and invade the rest of Moldova. So another interesting thing about Moldova is that Russians make up the second largest ethnic minority. They're about 10% of the overall population of Moldova, so about 370,000 Moldovans. And this just goes to the shared unity, the shared history point that Putin loves to make with these former Soviet republics, which Moldova is one. Russians historically settled Moldova. If you go back in time, they annexed the country from the Ottoman Empire. So you have this long lineage of uh, shared connection uh, between the two countries. I wouldn't go so far as to say shared unity necessarily, because I think, by and large, if you look at where Moldova is today, everything I've read, at least, seems to suggest that they have a worldview that's very similar to modern-day, most modern-day Ukrainians, where they have a very distinct identity. They don't all just think of themselves as Russian, for example. They do have a connection to Russia, but they also have a distinct identity of being Moldovan, similar to Ukrainians who have pride in a Ukrainian, a unique Ukrainian national identity. Moldova is not a NATO member country either, similar to Ukraine, but also similar to Ukraine, it has a history of conflicts with, with Russia following the collapse of the Soviet Union. In that one area of Moldova that I mentioned, Transnistria, there are about 1,500 to 2,000 Russian-backed soldiers already there. So one thing that could be aggravating to Russia today is that Moldova has actually, in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine, they've understandably uh, grown a bit scared that they're next. And they've reached out to the European Union for support, and while they haven't reached out formally to NATO, to my knowledge, they're looking to join the European Union along with countries like Georgia, and they'd like to be part of the broader bloc, and they desire to live in a world of peace, prosperity, and freedom. They want to align themselves more with the West, and there's no evidence, by the way, that there's any Western power that's coaxing them into this. These are people that want to self-determine their own destiny and identity. They want to 
be able to self-govern themselves and not answer to a puppet master like Putin. And that's understandable. I mean, how many people want to live under authoritarian control if they truly have the opportunity to self-govern their own lives and experience freedom? Many people that are happy under authoritarian regimes have just never really experienced freedom. And while I would never recommend pushing the idea of democracy on anybody, I think the West has done that far too much throughout its history. If a country comes to that conclusion itself, as it seems like Moldova is doing, then we need to give them that opportunity to try to become free. So I think we need to be really focused and hypervigilant on protecting Moldova and making sure that NATO forces that can be placed in some of the border countries like Romania that are nearby are on high alert and ready to defend Moldova if needed. So that's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please sure to give us a like, hit the subscribe button, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time at Polis Pandit. Cheers all.